save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to our wild world. Over the past several episodes, we've highlighted the rapid changes our planet and us have been facing from confronting day zero to infinite growth on a finite planet. For the past 50 years, I'm seeing that conservation, despite all the amazing efforts that have taken place, we are still losing the game. And I'm trying to figure out what is the missing link. Today, my guest is Brian Check, and we're going to discuss the trade-off between economic growth and wildlife conservation. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Ellie. It's great to have you here. This is a really important conversation for me as um, these past episodes have really opened my eyes to the missing piece of this puzzle of where conservation is failing. And uh, we started it with Aaron Vandiver on uh, the infinite growth on a finite planet. And it just really lit off the whole like holographic neural net that this, mm. I think, is the missing link. So why don't we start by uh, you giving us just a little bit of information about yourself. You very publicly uh, published a letter. Um, mm-hmm. Farewell to FWS. Goodbye to gag orders. And... Um, it's quite an important letter. So if you can give us just a bit of background on how, who you, what you were doing and mm-hmm. why this letter, and then um, we're going to dig in. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, that letter was uh, my retirement letter, and uh, I retired on October 31st, 2017 from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where I had worked in the headquarters for almost 18 years. Um, I was hired as the first conservation biologist by that title uh, in 1999. And uh, and I brought to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service a background uh, not only in field biology. I had been a biologist for a couple of decades already by the time I signed on with fish. Uh, but I also brought a, a background that I had just that I had spent much of the 90s in getting, which was a, a policy analysis background with a PhD in uh, renewable natural resources and a minor in political science. And I had wound up focusing on the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation. Uh, I got there through a policy analysis of the Endangered Species Act. I was looking at the causes of endangerment in the United States. So I had this big Excel file of all of the federally listed threatened and endangered species, and then the the various causes that cause their demise. Uh, And at the end of the day, so to speak, it, it just struck me that this list of causes it's a, a who's who of the American economy. So uh, I began to raise awareness of that, you know, what I interpreted as a trade-off between economic growth and wildlife conservation. 
But I was getting uh, kickback left and right that, oh, no, you're wrong. There is no conflict between growth and conservation. And, uh, and, and the reasons were really uh, simplistic, like, well, we need more money for conservation programs, things like that. And, uh, and then some other people had the opinion that, look, you're a wildlife biologist. You're not supposed to be talking about the economy. You know, and I rejected both of those types of uh, arguments and went on to really heavily focus upon uh, that conflict. Uh, I very uh, thoroughly, I, I want to say, studied economic growth theory, uh, the history of thought about economic growth, uh, the the. Uh, the field of ecological economics, in particular ecological macroeconomics, and, you know, very related specialties in economic growth, like the production function and and the role of technological progress in economic growth and that kind of thing. So I brought this to the Fish and Wildlife Service, and for a while there was a lot of support in the, in fish and wildlife to help raise public awareness. And when was of, this? Well, I signed on in 1999. Okay. okay. And, uh, from the get-go, there was uh, quite a bit of interest, but also from the get-go, there was, there was another camp that said, you know what, we don't want to be going there. And eventually, uh, that was the camp that prevailed and so starting that's, that's where you got gagged yeah i started getting these gag orders in 2001 that told me that in no uncertain terms that i was not to be talking about the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation so let's, now the, let's, let's step back one second so, sure. so our listeners understand so just give us a brief understanding of what we're talking about when we hear our politicians and business and corporates and current administration talk about, quote-unquote, economic growth. Uh, that's very important, yes. Uh, okay, so economic growth is simply increasing production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. And so that entails increasing population times per capita consumption. And, uh, and, and in fact, you can, uh, you can elaborate slightly by saying increasing per capita production and consumption. And so this so includes measured. everything, all these things that are resource uh, extraction intensive, resource exploitation intensive. Well, it includes everything that uh, results in a, a quote-unquote final service in the economy. So it's something that's purchased by a consumer or, and or by the government. Uh, in the U.S., the, the, the consumer makes up about 60-some 60, 60 percent of uh, consumption expenditures, probably closer to 70 percent now, and the government is the, the other big customer, if you will. So, you know, yeah, it's agriculture, it's mining, it's logging, it's infrastructure, uh, it's livestock grazing, it's uh, fisheries, commercial fishing, and it's outdoor recreation, you know, including fishing and hunting and, and so many other forms of outdoor recreation. 
It's all of the service sectors. It includes the so-called information economy, you know, and I, I think we'll get to more of that later, most likely. But, uh, you know, the thing I can say right off the bat is all the information economy did is kind of grease the skids for a more rapid growth than all of the other old regular sectors of the economy, like the agriculture and mining and logging and grazing, etc. So, and then so, in- so what we've got here is sort of like there's planet Earth doing its thing, spinning around, creating resources, and then we have this rather artificial or superficial, and I don't mean that it's superficial in in depth, but superficial organism that's been created by us floating on top that is Mm. all about consumption and profits. Yeah, that would be uh, one way to describe it. Uh, I think it might be helpful for the the listeners that are so interested in wildlife conservation that you, you might also view it as one big economy on planet Earth that has two main segments. There's the economy of nature and its non-human species, and then there's the human economy, Homo sapiens. And those two large economies conflict for resources, which essentially are habitats for the non-human species. And for humans, those habitats are liquidated and converted into uh, producer and consumer goods and services. Okay, so another way to say that the the, the na- natural economy is the services and benefits we receive from the functional earth. And well, by breaking it down into units that can be measured by a monetary economy without including the... Um, trade-off of the losses to the the resource nature economy right in there is the sticky wicket where the conflict is yeah and you know i think i think it's uh, appropriate to say that the economy of nature is all of the non-human species and their activities you know their production and consumption activities so you have plants that produce their own food with the process of photosynthesis. Well, that's a huge, that's the, that's the foundation of the economy of nature. And, and then you have, you know, the consumers, the primary consumers that eat the plants and the secondary consumers that eat the primary consumers. All of that production and consumption, which is very much about feeding, <laughs> basically. Right, right. You know, that's the economy of nature. And the human economy, it's a little bit artificial to separate it entirely because, let's face it, Homo sapiens is a biological species, just like everything in the economy of nature. But it helps to distinguish the two because Homo sapiens has uh, is, is distinguished in a number of very relevant ways in terms of wildlife conservation. And the technological regime, that's the primary uh, distinction. Okay, so um, we've got a few minutes here, but let's, uh, let's get into why is this topic of growth such an ignored subject and often taboo? 
let's mm-hmm. let's discuss that, and then as we move forward, we'll be able to understand more of what what you're trying to tell us that this is the gap mm-hmm. that NGOs, governments, politicians are not addressing in this in these two economic. Uh, circles that are going on. They're connected, mm-hmm. but we're not paying attention to the severity of the connection. Mm-hmm. So why is it taboo? Well, in government agencies, like the one I was in where I had the gag orders, it was taboo simply because you have political appointees uh, at the heads of these agencies. You have you know, secretaries of the interior and agriculture, for example, and energy. And then you have the agency directors and you have assistant directors and deputy directors. And and the directors are political appointees, pure and simple. They, their, you know, appointments are ratified in the Senate. And, uh, and so one of the harshest gag orders that I got was back in... 2011 when uh, the the director at that time, the pending director was undergoing his Senate confirmation hearings <laughs> because the appointees are afraid, you know, they're afraid of uh, what Congress is going to say if we begin to you know, point out that GDP growth as it's uh, causes its problems and, you know, uh, because economic growth is like this god in the policy arena of the federal government especially. Wow. This is such a huge topic. Um, I think what we should do now is maybe cut away to a break, and then we're going to get a lot deeper into this. I have so many questions. So, folks, stick yeah. with us. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Brian Check, and we will be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show. The Sharon Kleina Hour. Health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Brian Check, And we are talking about economic growth uh, and the trade-off between that and wildlife, excuse me, wildlife conservation. Because as we've been discussing over the past several weeks, what is the missing link? Why isn't conservation working? So, Brian, oftentimes when you're listening or involved in conversations, People often say it's greed. It's the greed of individuals and corporations and politicians. And that seems to be the culprit. But it's, it's bigger than that. Help us understand how that ties into this continuous growth model. Right. Well, so it, I guess it kind of depends where you want to hang your hat on sort of the ultimate problem. Uh, because, sure, you can always just blame everything in terms of environmental deterioration on quote-unquote greed. But I think we have to remember that, you know, as GDP grows, gross domestic product, as a function of the population and per capita consumption, frankly, it, you don't even need to have a lot of greed in society it's a matter of uh, simple increasing um, reallocation of natural capital from the economy of nature to the human economy. In other words, you don't have to have a, a greedy level of consumption to continue to erode the environment. If your goal is economic growth, you're going to have less and less biodiversity. Uh, you're going to have more and more pollution you're going to have 
uh, you know, less ecological integrity. Which is what's been going on for the past half century. So, like in the 60s, uh, which was when I grew up, we, we knew all this, that you could not have infinite growth on a finite planet. So, what happened over these past decades and seemingly very much in the last five to ten years that we reached this tipping point where that got forgotten and no longer became a model as you said you got gagged people didn't want to hear this anymore Mm -hmm. what happened fascinating Fascinating question and topic Uh, a number of things sort of uh, converged to reduce the public's awareness of limits to growth. Uh, One of them was just the raw politics of growth. You have uh, a collection of uh, corporate and and business interests out there that that think in shorter terms than, you know, than we might want to have society at large think. So they're, they're interested in their current balance sheets and the next quarterly report and what's going on at Wall Street. They want fast growth for the sake of maximizing profits in a shorter period of time. And they, of course, own a lot of the political uh, campaigns in the country. So you have... Uh, uh, a, a political system, a political economy, if you will, that's very much biased toward growth. And then a much more nuanced factor here is that you have a field of economics in academia and in in the professional uh, in the profession of economics in the public sector and in the private sector, where the theory of economic growth has frankly been corrupted to lead to the notion that that there is no limit that you can just continue to have greater and greater productivity through technological progress and that it's a a a tricky issue to deal with because there they tend to shroud the uh, the naivete of that notion with heavy-duty calculus. And so if you want to get published in an, in an academic economics journal, you, know, you have to speak some pretty heavy calculus. And most of the people that have allocated their time, for example, to understanding ecology and environmental matters, you know, they're never going to get to go there in their lifetime. And, and conversely, the professional or academic economist uh, is so usually uh, concerned with, in the academic case, getting published, or in the professional case, you know, climbing the ladder, that they don't get around to studying the ecological uh, basis of, of the economy. So there's that sort of dichotomy of, um, of topics, and there had been somewhat of a cure for that in the, uh, the field of ecological economics, but then you run into those teeth of the political economy again because that very pro-growth political economy sends all of its academic money to the pro-growth economic institutions like at you know the University of Chicago and places where uh, 
there is no recognition of limits to growth and you know this this fuzzy notion of perpetually increasing uh, per capita production. Wow. So this, the legal system that we're talking about here, the legal system of, let's call it corporate personhood, the ability of the corporate to sort of run the system as we've just sort of outlined, it doesn't include the costs of the individual nor the environmental degradation that this economic growth model wants to continue on. So how do we create a system that includes the natural capital and continue with economic growth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So I think the first uh, major reform is simply to to have the correct macroeconomic goal. And, And I wrote about this quite a bit in my book, Supply Shock. But what we need to do is amend the Full Employment Act, which is the act of Congress that was the primary legislation calling for economic growth in the United States. And uh, it has been amended a a few times. Usually people call it now the Full and Balanced Employment Act. We need to amend it to be a full and sustainable employment act. And the preamble has to state that Congress finds and declares that there is a limit to economic growth on a finite landmass, that there is a conflict between economic growth and the environment that's necessary for the future economy. And therefore, you know, the, the full and sustainable employment act is going to be amended through many of its sections to call instead for a steady state economy, which is stabilized production and consumption in the aggregate. So you're the founder of the Center for Advancement of a Steady State Economy, and you've written about this greatly, and it's on your web state at steadystate.org, and many articles under the blog there. I hope our listeners go and check some of that out. So why don't we dig into this? Tell us what Steady State is and what we need to do now to Mm -hmm. get there. Okay. Well, the best way to think of a steady state economy, if you're unfamiliar with, with it, is to think about economic growth. I mean, growth is increasing production and consumption in the aggregate. It's measured by GDP. Now, you could think of the opposite of that. That would be degrowth, which would be decreasing production and consumption of goods and services. And it would result in a declining GDP well, if you think about it a little bit, neither one of those scenarios is sustainable in the long run. Each of those trends can happen for some amount of time, but neither one is sustainable. So the the steady state economy is what's right in the middle there. It's non-increasing, non-declining size of economy. And that's why we call it the steady state economy. Uh, and so it means stabilized population. And it, by the way, it doesn't mean flatlined. You know, nobody is naive enough to think that you're going to have a, uh, for example, a $13.279 trillion economy day after day after day. There are going to be 
mild fluctuations in the American steady state and, and, and a global steady state economy. Uh, but that is far uh, more desirable than the boom and bust type scenarios that develop when you pull out all the stops for GDP growth. You know, people forget the Soviets tried that uh, during the Cold War, and, you know, people tend to overlook the reasons why that Soviet Union really collapsed. Well, that was a primary reason. They were racing the United States in uh, for GDP growth, and so they pulled out all the stops at the base of their economy in the agro-extractive sectors where you have to have more surplus for all the manufacturing and service sectors to grow. And they, they didn't have that capacity. So, you know, that crashed and uh, you get that all over the world all the time at different, in different countries at different times. Well, it seems like it's happening a lot right now, everywhere. I like sort of call, you know, everybody's boarded the crazy train, and you can feel the vibe. You can sort of hear the earth screaming out in grief that it's collapsing. So we're at this point under this current administration where it almost feels like the United States has been put into its own bubble, and that what we do here doesn't affect the rest of the world as our current administration goes about, oh, making such humongous changes in a rather um, immature way. So I'm not saying it's all bad. Everything's been shaken up, but it's also an opportunity now in this shakeup to redesign our system. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. How would we go about get reaching this steady state from where we are now? What mm-hmm. what's it going to take to reach a steady state? Okay, so so we already mentioned the full and sustainable employment act from the legislative side getting the goal corrected to start with. How uh, difficult is that going to be? Uh, extremely difficult. I mean, I it would it's impossible practically for this Congress uh, and probably for the next several. But, you know, the, for, for us at Cassie, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, it's a lifetime project. And uh, I don't think I'll be around to see it happen, frankly. But we're setting the, the ground, you know, we're uh, building the foundation, I think, at Cassie for uh, the steady state movement. Uh, but I want to point something out. This is not just a top-down governmental program here, what? because theoretically, if you have a public that's well aware of the conflict between economic growth and environmental protection, sustainability, national security, and international stability... If you have that public that understands uh, how bad, frankly, growing the economy becomes as the economy gets too big, the consumption is going to decline as a matter of citizenship and common sense. And theoretically, at least, you could establish a steady state economy with no legislation whatsoever. You could do it all from the demand side with the consumer. 
Now, I we think at Cassie that it's going to take a generous mix, so to speak, of of both private and public initiatives. We need uh, to lower the propensity to consume, as as a Keynesian might call it, Keynesian economist. But also, we have to have some, you know, accountability in the corporate world and in the macroeconomic policy policies. So. The full and sustainable employment act would just be a start. Uh, you then have to go to the tax code and uh, fiscal policy in general, the federal budget, the state uh, budgets that are crafted in the state and houses across the country and eliminate things like incentives for luxury spending. You know, there's a low hanging fruit. Oh. Why are we, you know, so, so that's uh, fiscal policy uh, ha- is full of uh, uh, clauses right now that actually incentivize people to spend more and to spend on, on unnecessary items. So that's, there's not a very difficult fix for that once you have a, a public that grasps the need to go to a steady state. So let me ask a question, like when you start considering the Asian uh, component and the wildlife trafficking component, which is all happening because of an increase in, let's call it the middle class and disposable income to be able to purchase more, consume more. And in a lot of these cultures and areas, it is about getting you know, wildlife and using wildlife for medicinals or uh, for chi or for whatever. So let's let's cross this over a minute into the effects on the wildlife component, the natural capacity of the world. Yeah. So there, you named uh, some sectors like the medicinal sector and the uh, you 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 alluded to the food sector like bush meat and coming from some countries, sometimes all the way to to the marketplace. Well, you know, these are uh, cases where it's very obvious how how a growing economy impacts the wildlife. You're you're essentially liquidating the stocks of fish and wildlife and plants very directly. But, you know, the bulk of the, the conflict comes from the habitat loss that results from all the rest of the economy. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the indirect impacts. So, so in the 60s, you know, conservation was all about protecting the habitat. Save the landscape and the species will return. So mm-hmm. here we are a full several decades later and we're right back where we started and save the habitat. So where do, how do we bring this together? Well, I think that uh, we continue to, to raise awareness of the trade-off between economic growth and wildlife conservation. That's one of the reasons that we, uh, well, that Cassie was established was because we recognized that there was a very low and frankly declining awareness of that conflict and so that that explains why Cassie was established in 2003 and little by little you know we're getting uh, individuals 
to revisit their common sense and to recognize limits to growth and the conflict between growth and conservation. And not only in not only individuals, you know, we're getting uh, the professional scientific societies like the Wildlife Society, Society for Conservation Biology, and and a bunch of others to uh, unite on the the fact of that conflict. And then you know the conservation NGOs like National Wildlife Federation and Defenders of Wildlife, they're they're next frankly, on our, our networking list uh, to help to raise this awareness. So what so, do you think of terms such as green growth and sustainable growth, and are they win-win terms misleading? And then you just uh, mentioned the NGOs. So the second part of that question would be, what do you think of some of the high-profile efforts and campaigns campaigns out there to preserve biodiversity and um, half the earth. Yeah, well, green growth, <laughs> to us at Cassie, that's the ultimate oxymoron. Uh, we, we have what we call a process of less brown growth. <laughs> less brown? Yeah, less hyphen brown. You know, what that means is with technological progress, you can uh, reduce things like, for example, Theoretically, for example, greenhouse gas emissions on a per capita basis, but not in the gross, not in the aggregate. And that's the, that's the thing that is overlooked all the time by the conservation NGOs. They, they are sort of on board with this fuzzy-wuzzy notion of green growth that just because, you know, with enough research and development, you may be able to get a little more efficient in the use of fossil fuels and go to other types of, of fuels and other sources of energy. What they're forgetting is when you have countries that are hell-bent on growth, it's not just going to be solar and wind. It's going to be solar, wind, and king coal. And it's not going to just be, quote-unquote, clean coal, another oxymoron. It's going to be the dirtiest of coal, and it's going to be tar sands. When you really are in hot pursuit of growing the GDP, you're going to have all that stuff. And that's just the beginning because those are the fuels. Then you got to think about everything that's getting fueled by those fuels, and that's where the real impact starts coming in, all the habitat loss. So there's no free lunch here. That's one thing we got to get the NGOs to, you know, face up to. There's no free lunch. You're not going to get there by going along with this fuzzy notion of green growth. Wow, this is this is huge. So we need to step away and take a short break. But uh, listeners, as you can tell, uh, this is quite um, the big topic, and we really need to pay attention to what Brian is saying and how economic growth does impact all our efforts on wildlife conservation. So be sure to look up Brian's website, steadystate.org, Cassie, C-A-S-S-E, and we will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show. The Sharon Kleina Hour. Health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Brian Check, as we are discussing uh, the conflict between economic growth and uh, the trade-offs with wild, on wildlife conservation. So in our last section there, Brian, we just finished talking about green growth and that it's kind of an oxymoron and then sustainable growth. And uh, so you wanted to say a few things that sustainable growth is also uh, one of our keyword phrases that 
could be misleading. Yeah, I mean, we, we consider that also to be an oxymoron. You can't have something uh, growing perpetually. Uh, and, he, and an economy, by the way, is, is definitely a very physical entity. You know, it's not uh, some sort of spirit. It, it's, it has a trophic structure that, uh, that reflects the economy of nature with its producers and primary consumers and secondary consumers and so on. So, yeah, sustainable growth is an oxymoron. Sustainable degrowth would be an oxymoron. The only thing that's ultimately sustainable, sustainable in the long run, is the steady state economy. We're going to pull all this together, but in the last section, you had mentioned something that lit up a question, efficiency and convenience. As we get more efficient in our um, machinery and our production and our devices, we actually are using more energy uh, and thinking about it less. And then there's the con- uh content of convenience that everything is at our fingertips so in terms of steady state green growth sustainable growth efficiency and convenience they're all sort of acting in conflict with the ability to reach this steady state or are they it's a very nuanced question the relationship of efficiency to these other uh things that you mentioned so I, I want I think the best way to put it in radio terms is that if the efficiency was magically waved into existence with a magic wand uh, then it would be fantastic sure and you could have more with let you know with less resources but such is not the case efficiency it comes from research and development and it's not manna from heaven it takes uh, resources it takes economic surplus to conduct the R&D that uh, gives the increased efficiency and so there there was never a free lunch Uh, it wasn't manna from heaven and if you continue to have as your primary economic goal Growth. Well, then, what good did that efficiency do you, even in the in the end when you did get it? Because you're just going to use that efficiency dividend toward liquidating additional natural capital that you couldn't have prior to achieving that efficiency. So it's uh, it it does not solve. It does not reconcile the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation. Okay, so then that brings us to the E.O. Wilson concept, half the earth, or nature needs half. How do we get there without addressing growth? Can these types of proposals go anywhere? Do they have any chance of success? Absolutely not. Zero. Not a nilch. <laughs> you, if you can't uh, get serious about addressing the growth of population times per capita consumption... That's your economy. If you can't get serious about stabilizing that, you should forget about uh, uh, any kind of notion about half planet or, you know, nature needing half and, and saving that half. By the way, I want to mention that that Ed Wilson, he gets it. Uh, some of the, the, the conservation 
NGOs that have run with this concept, they forget that Ed Wilson, he's a, he's a signatory to the Cassie position on economic growth, which states there is a fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. And, and it goes on to specify biodiversity conservation as, uh, you know, manif- as, as one of the manifestations of that conflict. Uh, biodiversity loss is a, a, a necessary outcome of GDP growth. And it's not just a theoretical uh, construct. It, all of the, the statistical analysis addressing that topic shows there to be, you know, uh, the extremely uh, tight statistical correlation that when you investigate the causes, you realize it's not some incidental correlation, it's a causative effect. Wow. So this brings me to um, some other things I was reading in uh, on your blog and at Cassie and the environmental Kuznets curve. I think mm-hmm. this might be a place, uh, the simplistic reasoning behind the environmental Kuznets curve is that we need enough money to fix the problems caused by earlier phases of economic growth. Right. And you call this the tail wagging the dog. Help help mm-hmm. us understand that correlation and that relationship. Yeah, so the, the, Kuz, the environmental Kuznets curve, you're exactly right. It's this notion that Okay, as the economy grows, it, it causes problems, but if only you can manage to grow the economy far enough, then all of a sudden you're wealthy enough to spend the money to solve the problems. Which is where <laughs> we're at. Yeah, 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 you could say it's where we're at, or you could say that you never get there. Is, that would be another way to say it, because what, what the Kuznets curve leaves out is the most important piece of the puzzle, which is how was that money generated to begin with? And that's where our, uh, our uh, assistance from ecological economics will help because, you know, we, we realize, we recognize, we describe how that money is generated through the surplus at the base of the economy, the agricultural and extractive sectors that free the hands for the division of labor unto the manufacturing and service sectors. Wow. So it's, you think about economic growth, it's not, you know, uh, a bicycle growing here and a, and a Hummer disappearing there. It's Economic growth is the entire collection of sectors growing as an integrated whole. And some things, yes, will disappear, some things will decline, but as a whole, the economy is growing as a function of more agro-extractive surplus at the base. So, where do we go from here? In the sense, you know, will technology save us? Will science save us? What do we as individuals, I mean, as you'd said a little while back, this is not a top-down problem. We need to act as individuals from the bottom up and change not only our consumer spending, you know, the dollar is the vote in what you choose to buy, 
And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just stopping using plastic bags. It's going to take a lot of different efforts, but it's not necessarily efforts that will send us back into cave times and and lose all of our technology. Mm -hmm. So I I think that uh, it's most relevant to think in terms of two... uh, entities here one is the individual consumer and then one that's particularly relevant to the show here is uh, the conservation NGO so for the individual consumer simply lessening consumption is huge Uh, it's a very simple straightforward but effective act toward conservation because when we realize that the economy is an integrated whole that, that grows related to all of the other sectors and all of the other economic activities, you know, you're right. It's not just a plastic bag here or driving a Prius there instead of a, a Cadillac. It's lowering GDP, frankly. That's the quickest way to put it and the easiest and, and very meaningful way to put it. How do you do that without losing jobs or, um, you know, everything that's of concern to, let's call it, middle class, main street, and lower income families that are hurting right now, truly? Well, first of all, the way to really eliminate jobs is to exceed the capacity of the country and of the planet for, for economic activity, you know, you think there's a problem with unemployment now, it's extremely short-sighted because uh, that exceeding of capacity will cause unemployment at an order of magnitude greater than, than the current, you know, problem. So that, that's, the, that's one key thing. But also when you eliminate a lot of the luxury type sectors, and you look at uh, the equity issues that are, uh, you know, key to the in the tax code and, and federal and state budgets. Uh, that's the other way to address employment. But I so, wanted to the, go ahead. Okay, on the, on the issue of the conservation NGOs, uh, no one is proposing that they all drop what they're doing and rush headlong into the macroeconomic policy arena. You know, they all have already important roles to play. You know, some of them focus on mammal conservation, some on the oceans, and, you know, and some on air and water quality, etc. And they should keep doing that. The one thing, however, that they really have got to do if there's going to be any hope of sustainability and uh, this, especially with this, this great goal of, uh, of half-earth conservation type thing, then they've got to begin to unite on the fact that, yes, there's a limit to economic growth, and all the time there is a, a fundamental conflict between growing population times consumption and environmental protection and some of them that simply means to cease and desist from the green growth rhetoric that alone is progress 
you know, others of them have coffee table books where they can include a piece now and then on the trade-off between GDP growth and and wildlife conservation. So we, we you know, we need we need a, there uh, to be that as a unifying issue among the NGOs. So is a part of this in terms of the luxury services consumption? A lot of NGOs are going a lot. This may be a stupid question. Are going toward you know the boutique camp and bringing in ecotourism and bringing in more people on these delicate systems? Is what is it, briefly what are these luxury services deconsumption you're talking about? Yeah, that is an example. But when I when I said that before, that was in the context of the broader public, and I was thinking of even worse examples. You know, like the incentives for driving SUVs in the tax code okay. As, okay. as opposed to in opposite incentives like incentives for saving gasoline and and for uh, energy conservation and things that allow you to lower GDP without really affecting the happiness of, of, uh, of citizens. So this, this does also include you know cap and trade. Yeah, cap and trade is a, a promising uh, approach. However, we we think that that's sort of a second generation policy reform because you have uh, growth interests that uh, you know that think that you can reconcile cap and trade system with GDP growth as well. You know, you keep increasing caps over time and. Uh, or you're somehow you're going to have perpetual technological progress within a cap, and you know neither of those things work. So I think you have to first have the paradigm shift away from growth as the goal to steady state as a goal. Then you have the prospect for a durable cap and trade. So this brings us full circle to pretty much where we began. How do we get um, environmental and governmental departments to talk about this 800-pound gorilla, the conflict between economic growth and wildlife conservation, so that we can pick up this torch and start moving toward the steady state? Right. It does. It leads back to that. It's... uh There probably are people out there that would uh, criticize uh, us as saying, well, it's just talk. But we would we would uh, refute that by noting that you're not going to get any kind of policy reform or change in the propensity to consume until there is plenty of talk about the need to do so. So this is step one. Talking, there has to be much more talk about it, much more raising awareness. Then we'll see the consumption and policy reforms. So this is very timely in the sense that we have in this country elections coming up, and in other countries where there is still a lot of wildlife. Let's example Africa that is modeling um, their growth model after. You know this economic growth model that you know by 2050 we're going to have this you know building expressways through national parks with interchanges and fracturing corridors all these things that um, I've talked about previously on this show and I hope to talk about more with you. So mm-hmm. what is it? So 
what we can do as listeners, as social activists through social media, what we can do is pay attention and start bringing this conversation to the fore. And, you know, stop the vitriol about greed and pointing fingers and yelling at individual groups like, oh, the hunters, the trophy hunters. It's all of it. It's no one single thing. We all have to start participating in reducing our impact. That's a great point because it does show uh, the potential for uh, a great deal of unification on this topic. Wow, this this is huge. So um, do you have a final takeaway for us today? And we're certainly going to have more conversations on this. But what would be um, your takeaway for our listeners today of something after listening to this episode that they could latch on to and do? I would really want the listener to go to SteadyState.org and sign the, the position on economic growth. Join, join E.O. Wilson uh, join Jane Goodall, join David Suzuki, all of our uh, signatories, 13,000 plus signatories that have come right out and said, despite what the government gags and despite what the perpetual growth theorists say, there is a fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. And as that list of signatories grows, so does the, the potential for policy reform and as well as, you know, consumption uh, reform. Well, thank you. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation today. My head is just alight with so many questions and concepts and filling in these gaps. So I really do think, as we started out uh, this morning, that this question here that we're discussing today is one of the big missing links in making turning conservation back toward being a functional aspect of protective and uh, less extraction of earth as a resource that we all need that uh, is the bottom of our very survival so uh, Brian I want to thank you so much for your time thank you Ellie It's been fascinating, and I hope we speak again. So, meanwhile, listeners, uh, do visit SteadyState.org, become a signatory, think about what we've talked here today, and what you can do to protect our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. We'll be right back.